Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm thankful for God's mercy, even in little things this morning, like when he reminds me there's another song before my time to preach. It was going to be very awkward with me standing here and the song begins. Is there something I need to do, guys? We're going to return to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. We've uh, looked at this book a few times in the past year. Uh, We're going to think about chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 3. Last week, Jeremy pointed us to what I might call, these are my words, forgive my metaphor, the muscles of ministry from Ephesians chapter 4, where we saw how the, the Spirit gives gifts, provides the equipment to the church for the work of ministry. Today, I want to direct your attention to what we might call the, the heart of ministry, what lies behind even the, the muscles and the working out of this ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4, Uh, Verse 11 speaks of the shepherds and teachers that equip the saints for the work of ministry. Today I want you to think about particularly pastoral ministry, this heart of pastoral ministry that speaks to the heart of of a shepherd. A shepherd is a pastor. And surely the shepherd who seeks to equip the church for the work of ministry will be described by this heart of ministry that he He hopes to convey to the people of the church. The New Testament has a lot to say about shepherds. And I must confess to you this morning uh, that the Bible, just in case you didn't realize, the Bible works its way through teachers in the church before it ever gets to the church body. So hear this sermon as, first of all, a sermon to myself (laughs) before it ever became a sermon for you. Paul told the elders in Ephesus, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to care for the church of God. Peter also told elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Pastors are like shepherds who who feed and lead and protect the flock of God's sheep we call the church. And yet not every shepherd is a faithful shepherd. Jude warns about those shepherds who would feed themselves rather than God's sheep. God has severe words for shepherds like that. He spoke through the prophet Zechariah, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Those are challenging words. The Bible's call in pastoral ministry is is serious. And the Holy Spirit offers a stern rebuke to any shepherd who's more concerned with feeding himself than in feeding God's sheep. His words from Zechariah even give us the idea he's not worth his, his arm and his right eye. And yet, God has promised through the prophet Jeremiah that he would send faithful shepherds who would care for the flock and relieve their anxiety and fear. Shepherds who would labor so that not one sheep is missing from God's fold. That's the promise of God. And that's the essence of Paul's ministry to the church at Thessalonica that we read about in this short letter called 1 Thessalonians. This is the kind of ministry to which every pastor, every every elder is called to. The essence of this heart for ministry 
is found in chapter 3, verse 8. It should be on the screen. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It'll become more clear what that verse means as we go along. If you've been with us for any time uh, since maybe before when I've been able to teach through 1 Thessalonians, we, we have seen a bit about Paul's labor to this church earlier on in this letter. So in chapter 2 and verse 7, if you're following along, he, he describes his ministry like, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In verse 11 of chapter 2, he describes his work as like a father with his children, exhorting and encouraging and charging his spiritual children. Paul was not loosely connected to this church. He was fully invested in their spiritual well-being. On Paul's missionary journeys, if you're familiar with them, we could describe them with two words, preaching and also running. (laughs) Always preaching the gospel, often on the run. He arrived in this city of Thessalonica because he had just been released from prison and evicted from the city of Philippi. Making his way to this city of Thessalonica, he preached there for three weeks before a Jewish mob rose up and caused him to flee from the city. He ran for his life under the cover of night and made it to this, the city of Berea. But the agitators followed him there and raised up a riot against him there. And so the Christians sent him to Athens. Now, if you're checking your trusty maps in the back of the Bible, Berea is about this far from Thessalonica. But Berea is about this far from Athens. So Paul put a great space between him and these persecutors, maybe hoping to let the persecution die down some so that he could return to his preaching ministry. It was in Athens that Paul waited for his fellow missionaries, Timothy and Silas, to join him. And that's who this letter is written from. Paul and Silas and Timothy, we read in verse 1 of chapter 1. And Paul was used by God to preach a very great sermon to the philosophers in Athens And even though uh, God used Paul there, he would have much rather not been in Athens, but been back with the church at Thessalonica. He would have rather had been with this small, new church, serving them, loving them, caring for them. See, there was no Zoom in the first century. He couldn't check up on them. He had to rely on a messenger to tell him what's going on and then travel back with another message, which may take weeks to happen. So Paul would have rather been in Thessalonica, but not just because he he enjoyed that place more, but because Paul was a faithful shepherd. He cared about these sheep, so he was anxious to know of their condition, their spiritual condition, because this church was very dear to Paul. He had preached the word there. The people received the word, not as his own, but as the word of God. They turned from their idols and they worshiped the true and living God. And then the testimony of their faith spread to all the region around them so that others who did not know the Lord knew about the gospel spreading in Thessalonica. But there was one other feature of their faith in Christ that Paul knew about. And sometimes we, especially in our country, forget about this other common element that goes along with the gospel. It's the element of persecution and affliction. See, where the gospel goes, it bears the fruit of faith and hope and love. 
but also affliction. And Paul wanted to know, how are my brothers and sisters doing? Are they bearing through this affliction, standing with Christ, persevering in the faith? Or are they being drawn away from Christ, leaving their stand? Paul has this curiosity because he has a heart for pastoral ministry. Because he loves these people. Pastors are concerned, most of all, that people persevere in the faith through the afflictions of life all the way to the end. And Paul exemplifies for us this morning the heart of a pastor or a shepherd who prioritizes three things. These are the three topics this morning. People, perseverance, and prayer. Dare I say that most so-called churches these days, especially in our location of the world, don't have shepherds with these kind, this kind of a heart. They certainly have shepherds, but they're more interested in serving themselves or serving the world than caring for God's sheep. And the flocks they lead are not headed for the gate of heaven. These kinds of shepherds are leading their flock straight to the gates of hell. So let's think about the heart of God's kind of shepherd this morning. He has a heart for people. Look verse, in verse 17 of chapter 2. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? Or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, those are pretty big words. And you may be reading that wondering shouldn't Christ be Paul's glory and joy and crown of boasting? Shouldn't that be the Lord Jesus, not these people? But let's think about who Paul is and what he's doing. Yes absolutely is Christ Paul's joy and crown and hope but all of Paul's life is wrapped up in spreading this good relationship with Christ to others everything about what Paul is doing in life is about Christ and moving Christ from not only his heart but to the hearts of others Paul's whole life is wrapped up in in conveying the hope of the gospel rooted in Christ to sinners who who need to hear he told the church at Corinth, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul was giving all of his efforts to people to hear and know the same Christ that Paul knew. See, a pastor's success is not making it to the end of life exhausted, though he may be exhausted. It's, it's making it to the end of life, to the finish line, with something to show for his effort. Pastors are motivated to bring fruit with them. Peter urged the elders to shepherd well because when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Pastors who hope to receive reward from the Lord Jesus do so because they have shepherded well because of the people. People are the business of pastors, not buildings or programs or books or organizations. Though all of those things can be good and helpful, it's the people. And Paul here is an example to every shepherd. 
that when Christ returns, our joy will be found in appearing before the Lord Jesus with our arms open and being able to say, we're all here. So when Paul was taken prematurely from this church, he felt like he was torn away. That's what verse 17 says. When we were torn away from you, brothers. That word is literally orphaned. Kind of changes the the thought that Paul's conveying earlier in chapter 2 that he was the spiritual parent. But now he's saying, even as the spiritual parent, it's like, I've been orphaned from these, my spiritual children. Such distress was in his heart because he wasn't present with the ones he was caring for. Now, I hear it's hard enough to say goodbye to a college student who's leaving your home. But imagine being ripped away from a seven-year-old who's lacking in maturity and cannot stand on her own in the world by herself. That's a scary idea. It would take a work of the devil to keep a faithful parent away from his child in that way. But that's exactly how Paul describes his experience with this church. Satan hindered us from returning to you. As if Satan came and broke up the road so that that his way was impassable. Now I suppose that some people might think that that kind of a connection between elders and and the the people of the church is is strange. But if so, I, I might encourage you to reconsider your thinking about the church. The church isn't primarily for networking or entertainment or socializing, not profit or education or pampering the people who come along. Church is a brotherhood. It's a family. A family of prisoners who've been set free. Prisoners who were once without hope, headed for eternal destruction, And what's worse, we actually enjoyed the prison we were in. And then the Lord Jesus Christ as our advocate comes along and rescues us from prison. Brings us out of that place. Shows us the misery of the conditions we were once in. He's given us hope and joy and told us he's preparing a place for us. And he's he's taking us to that place and one day we will be there with him. And all the while, even in this world, we're still kind of looking over our shoulder second glancing, not knowing what dangers lurk around each corner, how Satan might tempt us to draw us back into the prison we were in. But then we come to fellowship and to worship on the Lord's Day, surrounded by other prisoners set free. And we understand the difficulties each of us has because we've been through some of the same difficulties. And we we know the the griminess of the prison that we came from. And we can breathe easy together. Because this, not this building, but this this assembly of, of prisoners set free, this is different than the rest of the world around us. The world out there cares nothing about our souls. Not Facebook, not the president, not Walmart, not your employer. I can't say that. I'm grateful for that. But we come here, and this gathering of people is different than every single other one. And Paul knew that about the church. Of all God's people, the shepherds should know this is different. And we are serving, laboring, 
so that all of God's sheep would persevere through this life all the way to the end until every day is an assembly of God's people for all of eternity. So this is the second priority of a shepherd's heart. Not only people, but perseverance. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Now perseverance is standing fast in the Lord, continuing on in life, in many ways on your feet, not moved like Verse 3 says, moved by these afflictions. Because afflictions have that tendency to, to move you away from where you should be or where you want to be. And Paul's probably referring to, to actual persecution that this church was experiencing because of, of their faith in Christ. Not necessarily their preaching, but, but just the fact that they bore the name of Christ. They, they now call themselves Christians. They trust in Christ was to cause them problems in life. Maybe they were banned from trade. Maybe they were stopped from traveling in certain places. Maybe they just were limited in their interaction in the city because they carried this name of Christ. That kind of persecution is the consequence of the wickedness of man whose intentions of his heart is only evil continually. And he's set against the, the holiness and the goodness of Christ. But the Bible in other places, uses the word affliction to speak of all kinds of suffering and unpleasant experiences just because we live in this sin-cursed world. So, in Luke 16, 21, the Bible uses the word affliction to speak of the pain of childbirth. I hear that's pretty terrible. Or poverty. The church in Jerusalem was facing poverty. That was an affliction. So the, the church at Corinth was giving to Paul to, to take a ministry, a, a help, a contribution to the church because in their affliction, they were, in their poverty, they were facing this affliction. The Bible also speaks about sickness and sorrow and anxiety and fear with the word affliction. Or there's difficulty that obedience to the word of God brings. That is affliction. Living on this earth where everything is either dead or dying brings affliction to live here church is to suffer but to live on the earth as a follower of Christ in many ways is to suffer more because we know what holiness and righteousness and truth is and we we recognize that it's not out there may I say that even COVID is an affliction it may be common to every person on the earth. But for the Christian, we recognize that even COVID is a consequence of sin in the world. I don't mean that one person sinned, so God sent that virus to one person or, or to anybody who received it. But because there is sin in the earth, there is things such as a virus. Everything that leads to death, everything that reeks of death, is because of that first death-delivering 
disobedience in the Garden of Eden. I hope you hate sin. But hold your head up. Because in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But we know one who did. And his name is Jesus. We know him who suffered under the burden of sin most of all. Christ bore the weight of our sin. That is affliction. But Christ's affliction is even broader than that. We get really tired of things like pain and sorrow and frustration and fear and fatigue. But consider the Son of God who at one time existed eternally in the heavens in full glory, in full fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And yet he determined to take on the veil of flesh. He who was perfect in all perfection chose to come and take place among people like us to experience the same things. Every single step he took was a moment of affliction because there was sin all around him. Holy God condescended to face the pain and the hunger and the sorrow that is the measure of living on this earth. We cannot even imagine Christ's affliction. But we can experience a bit of that affliction in this life. And primarily, affliction is the pain that comes with the gospel. So if you come to Christ, plan for the best thing in all of life to be true for you. But also plan that life will probably be a bit harder. Now, not everyone's going to be on the same point in that spectrum. But everyone who calls themselves a Christian will be on that spectrum. And so Paul taught the Thessalonians this truth. He told them, it's going to happen. You're destined for this. It's going to be part of your life. It's going to happen to all of God's people. None of us will escape difficulty as a child of God until we get to heaven. And yet the sad truth is many people who call themselves Christians are moved by these afflictions. You know what that word moved is, right? That story just moved me. It's not that. Did anyone ever watch the TV show in the 90s, The American Gladiators? For you younger people, think American Ninja Warrior one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm sorry if you think that's not a great show, but that was my teenage entertainment. One of my favorite events was the joust. So a contestant would get up on the pedestal and battle the professional gladiator with a stick trying to knock each other off. I'm not suggesting you go look it up. Just let me convey it to you. All it took was one strong blow to the face and you were sent flying off onto the pads. Afflictions can feel like a strong blow to the face. But that's not really the sense of moved either that Paul's speaking of here. Now being moved is very serious. This is falling away from the faith, changing your mind about continuing to trust in Christ when I think about those gladiators, it would go something more like this. Getting up on the pedestal, the professional gladiator ascends the pedestal also. He swings the first blow. It wasn't a mortal blow, but it was painful and hard nonetheless. Creates a bit of shakiness. And to be on the pedestal is to think, I can't endure the rest of these. <laughs> this is going to be too hard. I, you know, I'd rather just live and lose than endure all of these painful beatings 
And so you forfeit and jump off the pedestal, but at least you forfeited with your life, right? The only bad thing is in the Christian life, if you forfeit, you don't keep your life. Worse yet, to be moved by these afflictions could be like being on the pedestal and seeing your, your opponent, the professional gladiator, ascend the pedestal. And you see, look at all those muscles. I think he's done this before. There's no way I'm going to last. Before you even want to endure the first blow and sit through, maybe make it through until the time runs out, I'm just going to go ahead and give up before the first one ever comes. Convinced in your mind that that's a better plan. That's the kind of moving that Paul is speaking about. To be convinced in your mind it's better to not even face the troubles than to go through them. This is why Paul is willing to be left alone to send Timothy to check on the church because if this church is convinced that it's better not to face the afflictions, then they will move away from the gospel because the tempter is enticing. The tempter comes not to beat you up physically until you give in, though that may be part of the, the struggle. The tempter wants to convince you that either what you believe is wrong and so you should believe something different or what you believe isn't worth the trouble. This is the same temptation Satan gave Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? He's not really telling you the truth. Or worse yet, God just knows what's going to happen when you eat that fruit. Just disobey his word. It's going to be actually good for you. God's holding you back. He doesn't really love you. He just wants you to go through some difficulty. Just before I got married, my parents' house burned there was a chimney fire that spread into the attic and burned up a lot of the attic. No one was hurt. God was merciful. But when they put the fire out, you know how they did it? First, they tore down the chimney, took stone from stone, extinguished the source of the, the flames. And then they, for a long time, <laughs> dumped as much water as you can possibly imagine on as much portion of the house as they could. And then you thought that was enough water and they just put some more on my dad is a retired fireman, ironically enough. And he would tell us, the worst thing for a fireman, you know what that is? A rekindle. No fireman wants to wake up the next morning and hear, oh yeah, that fire that you thought you put out, it actually came back and burned down the rest of the house. <laughs> See, Satan wants to, to be a very good fireman in your heart. He wants to, to destroy the truth that, that builds up this fire for the Lord, to, to break it all apart so that it's, there's no more structure to it. And if he can, can't do that, then he'll, he'll just put as much water on it as he possibly can, drown out your devotion to the Lord. And he'll use affliction to do it. And if the afflictions do their job, then you are moved from your faith, thinking that Christ really can't do much for me, or thinking that these afflictions are not worth what Christ does for me. So brothers and sisters, don't tell me there's no such thing as conspiracy. There is at least one grand conspiracy over the whole world, marked by millions of little schemes of the devil. We know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the whole world is ready to accommodate the devil's lives, lies to get you to believe something different. 
Jesus said that from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But these days the world is telling us that man's problem is all wrapped up in his skin rather than in his sin. It's very tempting the way the world reshapes many of the doctrines we hold true. But the Bible is telling us that the the sin lies in people's hearts. It's our hearts that need renovation. But probably the temptations that you'll face will be much more subtle than grand world philosophies. They're going to be things like dissatisfaction with your spouse or being aggravated with your children or being frustrated at work. You have all these expectations of life and they just don't seem to pan out. But those things don't make you a victim. They make you a person. A person who has to deal with sin, whether your own or, or sin from other people. And those temptations should drive Christians deeper in our devotion, in our worship of the Lord. But oftentimes they, they make us more relaxed. And too often the hardship results in this wonder, what, what good really is my spiritual life? It's not making today any better. Maybe I don't need it for tomorrow. You may not verbalize that question just like that, but, but the priorities of your life kind of shift and you slowly move away from trusting and following Christ. And this, this dullness grows within your heart about life in general. And instead of asking, how can I honor Christ through all of these difficulties, you're tempted to think that life should really be more about satisfying my own concerns. The world convinces us that we must escape our troubles, but God tells us how to deal with them and how to fight through them. Afflictions are like a a fork in the road where one side looks like uh, an overgrown path. It's very dark, looks unsafe. And the other side is very broad, well-worn. There's light there. Seems like a lot of people have gone that way. And you would want me to say that the gospel path is the cheery one, the bright one. But it's more likely that sometimes in walking with the gospel and walking with Christ, you have to travel the hard road. But we need to keep a long-term view, not a short one. What's hard today is very persuasive to tempt us to go in a different direction. The Thessalonians were encountering this persuasive power of persecution. So Paul says he, he couldn't bear not knowing if the church was still standing. Maybe they had been persuaded that life is just easier or maybe it's safer without Christ. So Paul sent Timothy and in verse 2 he says we sent him uh, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So Timothy had this job to establish the church. Now the church was already founded but he's establishing their faith. He's, He's strengthening their faith. He would teach them truths or remind them of truths that they had already heard or he would tell them new truths that would Uh, Give them a a stronger foundation in their afflictions. It's like he's adding posts to this building that is teetering, tottering. He would also exhort them. He would urge them to stay the course. He's calling on these believers to keep going. Whatever the cost, Christ is worth it. So this exhortation is is a form of comforting. He's comforting these believers that, that what you're experiencing is not too great of a cost. 
you know the difference between mom comfort and dad comfort, right? Mom sees a kid fall, rushes to her side. Let me hold you. Do you need a hug? Do you need a Band-Aid? Maybe give some soothing. But dad, I can say this because I am one. Dad sees the fall and he's checking it out. What really happened there? You know what? I think that really was painful. I, I think so, but you know what? Just stand up. You're going to make it. Get up. Brush it off. You know, I've fallen before too, and it does hurt. And you're going to bleed, but look at that scar. <laughs> Here, let me help you. We're going to make it together. This is the kind of comfort that Timothy would have given the church. Not, not soothing over the affliction as if it's not there, or giving them the impression that this is the end of the world, but energizing the church, exhorting them, strengthening them through this affliction. And it's all on the basis of the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us energy through this day and through the next day to make it through the afflictions of life. Do you recognize the biggest hope we have? It is great news to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but he gives us hope that is far beyond this life filled with afflictions. If you can quickly look in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have a hard time answering that question, what is the Christian's greatest hope? Here it is in 1 Corinthians 15. In the very last verse of this chapter, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now this sounds a lot like some of the things he's telling the Thessalonian church. Be steadfast, immovable. And this comes at the very end of this whole chapter. 57 verses come before it. That's a lot of verses. In verse 58, you'll notice, starts with therefore. We know that that word points us back to all that's come before it. So Paul is saying everything else that I've just said, for those reasons, then be steadfast, be immovable. Continue in your service to the Lord. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is teaching all about the resurrection. Yes, the resurrection of Christ, but even more than that, the resurrection of Christ ensures his people's resurrection. Do you realize this is not the end? When we finish this life on the earth, to follow after Christ means that even our bodies will be renewed. They will come back. So Paul wrote in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians all about the resurrection. If you're following along, look in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Christ is certainly a hope in this life, but this isn't the only part of life in which we have hope. Christ gives us hope beyond this life. Look in verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I'm no farmer, but I know enough to know that the first fruits is a sign of the fruit that's coming. Christ was that first fruit. His resurrection shows us that his people will also be raised from the dead. We don't hope for a better life now. We hope for a brand new life then Look towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15. What does this mean? Verse 54. When the perishable 
puts on the imperishable. That is, when the mortal, okay, our mortal lives, our mortal bodies, put on this immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, I got that backwards. Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is saying, when Christ rose from the dead, he gained the victory over death. And he is ensuring that his people also will rise from the dead. And once we rise from the dead, we participate in the victory of Christ over death. Even death is not powerful enough for Christ. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we rise from the dead, even we will say, Death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death even has no power over God's people because Christ has already won the victory. Church, you can endure, not in yourself, but in Christ. Because one day in the future, we are guaranteed the victory. Christ has already won the victory. You don't know why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Christ overcame death by rising from the dead. And because Christ has, then his people will also. The ministry of a shepherd is driven by endurance. Not to smooth out, coddle the life that sinners have always wanted, but to establish the gospel as, as truth driven like a peg, firmly set in our minds. And then exhorting believers to, to persevere, boldly calling God's people to, to come on. Let's go. Don't let these afflictions overwhelm you, even if they are extremely terrible. Because of Christ, we can all make it. Stay the course. Our society is marked by this intense aversion to anything that's difficult. And if you're not careful, the tempter will tempt you to do whatever you can to avoid that difficulty. But that is a trap. You will not only, you will not avoid difficulty in this life. And the only thing that explains suffering is God's truth. And the only thing that, that is a, a measure of enduring through the suffering is gospel hope. Where those roots are, are deeply set in Christ Jesus, the suffering servant. So church, would you aim for endurance? Then strengthen your knowledge of the Lord. The Lord who, who suffered affliction with us and for us. Dig deeper into the, the word of God to understand the greatness and the mercy and the goodness of God. And how he has done good for his people through the gospel. Would you aim for endurance? Then turn that, that knowledge into devotion to the Lord. Apply the gospel to every, every moment, every aspect, every day of your life. Now that may sound like a confusing thing to think about, but, but remember how, how Christ, even in the resurrection, has given us strength for today. Look in verse 6 of chapter 3. See how this ministry works out for Paul. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love 
and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So Timothy returns to Paul and gives him this good news, like almost like a, a second gospel for him. This is good news that the church is persevering with Christ. See, Timothy had gone to exhort and comfort the church, but now the good news of their perseverance is a comfort to the Apostle Paul. It's as if their suffering was actually suffering for the Apostle. And so their persistence, their perseverance is a comfort to him. He is now receiving this energy, this strength to continue in his gospel work. We live, he says, if you are standing firm in the faith. What keeps a shepherd going? It's not that you are successful or that you escape difficulty or that you avoid illness, even though we would want those things for you also. What keeps a pastor going is that in every success and in every, every suffering that you experience, that you persevere in the faith. Brothers and sisters, keep at it. We have probably a long road ahead of us. Whatever the thought that first came to your mind when I said that is likely true. And each of us may have a hundred different ideas of what does that long road include. Each of us has our own path in the gospel that has a different set of afflictions. But Christ is not beyond any of those sets of afflictions. He is our faithful good shepherd. Christ has and will lead his people all the way to eternity. So we can make it. The heart of a shepherd is compelled not only by people and perseverance, but also by prayer. So we'll end with this. Look in verse 9. Paul writes, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Prayer is essential to a shepherd because there is almost nothing that he can do by himself. Paul couldn't even ensure that he would see this church face to face again without God's help. Much less could he ensure that they would persevere in the gospel and make it to eternity. No, a faithful shepherd knows that even as much as he labors and ministers and pours out his energy and time and effort and he shares love and, and he teaches in the church and he seeks to strengthen and encourage the church, no matter how much he gives, it is God who accomplishes that work. And so Paul is expressing thanksgiving. He's asking God to do more work, to make them be able to come to return, to continue to establish this church in holiness. So maybe we could do a bit of math here. Paul's knowledge of people and himself plus this need for perseverance, equals prayer. 
Well, pastoral ministry is no means for ambition or greed or power. Pastoral ministry is nothing less than following, striving to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. If you have time this week, I want to encourage you to read John chapters 13 through 17 and read how, how the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who, who gave his life for the sheep, who knows his sheep and his sheep know him, who prepares a place for his sheep and will return to bring his sheep to the place that he has prepared, who gives the Holy Spirit that great comforter, the one who will lead us in all truth and teach us the things that Jesus has said. Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. My brother elders, let this passage, this sermon be an encouragement to us, like a renewal to the, the biblical model of shepherding ministry and church. Hear this this sermon is a is a call to to endure. I know what some of you are going through, but I don't know what all of you are going through. I don't know every aspect of your life. But I do know that the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for your life. No matter what the hardship is, you can endure not in yourself, but you can in Christ. Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and perseverance will describe your life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. I thank you for his words and his teaching, for how he points us to the gospel as our hope. Father, I'm greatly challenged by these words as one who who aspires to to be a shepherd, to serve in this role before your sheep. Lord, I do pray that your sheep would persevere through the afflictions of daily life, even the extremes of persecution for the gospel. Lord, may it be true that all of us might stand when Christ returns and say we're here. We're all here. Father, thank you for your provision for us, your provision of your son who is the chief shepherd. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides us and comforts us and strengthens us in the meantime while we wait for our Lord to return. Father, keep us, hold us fast so that we would stand firm in our faith. Amen.